Ask a Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to the second of our Ask a Leadership Podcast. And there really is something for everyone here, from school leaders talking about their roles, whether it's in Manchester with Patsy Kane or at Eton with Simon Henderson or in Leicester with Chris King. You've also got researchers here. You've got Philip Accordingly and Bill Lucas and from uh, California, Barbara Oakley, talking about the way we can open up research for more teachers to use. There's also people who have been influencers through the years. Um, Sir Michael Barber was the architect of much of what happened under Tony Blair's education, education, education years. And then there's Fiona Miller, a trenchant critic of so much education policy, talking to me at the Labour Party conference. And the real privilege of my job is I keep bumping into people and getting in conversations with people. So you've got Ali Oliver uh, from the Youth Sport Trust, chief executive there, talking about the importance of school uh, sport, both within the classroom and beyond the classroom. You've got Alison Peacock, who came and joined us at council uh, last week, Sean Harford from Ofsted. And perhaps most unexpectedly, I found myself in Jeremy Vine's Radio 2 studio with none other than Sir Michael Wilshaw. He's here as well. Hope you enjoy the interviews and uh, hope you have a great half term when you finally get there. Patsy Kane, Executive Head of the Education and Leadership Trust in Manchester. So tell us a little bit about what that trust is and uh, what's involved in it. Uh, It's three high schools in Manchester, all in challenging circumstances, uh, with high rates of deprivation, very diverse communities, uh, with students from all around the world, and... um, high high proportions of free school meals and pupil premium students. How how did they do in their exams in the summer? Well, two of the schools who've been in the Trust longest have have really done exceptionally well. We're all absolutely delighted, um, especially given that the students come in significantly below national averages. Uh, One of the schools, Wally Range, nearly 25% have achieved five or more A&A stars and nearly 23% at Leventhume High School. The third school... Um, We've been working with just for a year, so we're expecting next year will show much more impact. Great. Now, when I came and walked around Wally Range, uh, it's a girls' school. It's it's very ethnically diverse. And what struck me were two things. One is how it everywhere visibly exemplifies British values and talks about that in a very inspiring way, I thought. And secondly, what it does in terms of aspirations for young women. Just, Just describe the kind of things you've done there. Well, we are a cooperative academy trust and the cooperative um, values um, are the hook that we put a lot of work on anyway. So that's about fairness, about equality, about solidarity. So inclusion and valuing diversity is really at the heart of our work and does permeate the curriculum. I think the work on student leadership has strengthened the skills and confidence of a very wide number of students who've got so many roles they can take on and feel confident confident because one of the big aims of the school is to for students to know who they are to have fantastic qualifications but to know who they are and that identity as a member of a global community a British community and the school and the community that's in the city and last question um, a lot of your students and staff w- will have been affected one way or another by the arena bombing in Manchester What's that taught you in terms of leadership? You know, what, what was it like? But as you reflect back on how you led the schools uh, through that, what, what, what do you think? Um, I think it was 
incredibly distressing and it was one of the biggest challenges to the values and to the work that we've done over many years on diversity. There was a distinct increase in racism in the city um, but things like the Ariana Grande concert helped people to heal. There was a recent concert to mark the opening of the arena. That was a celebration of strength, bravery and courage but we've also done very practical work like publicising how to report racist incidents and making sure students feel empowered to do that because our society still doesn't want that to happen so it's giving them power to do something about something unpleasant that might happen to them and given those great results that you've got in those two schools i'm guessing it's been a pretty buoyant start to the year it's been such a positive year and we, we, we were all anxious, I think every head teacher, about the new examinations in English and maths. So it's given tremendous confidence, but we still meet together, working together as subjects, as heads, as deputy heads leading on achievement, sharing practice, challenging each other and really trying to understand the tweaks that have really made the difference and need to continue to be made. So it's that continuous learning and continuous sharing. Thank you very much. I'm, uh, I'm Michael Barber, Chair of the new Office for Students. I was one of the first generation of the National College new head teachers back, you know, whenever, whenever I started, uh, 2002, I think. And I had been shaped very much by The Learning Game, which was your book, which essentially set in motion a number of things we hadn't thought about. You called them paraprofessionals, for example. They became teaching assistants, but people who were not teachers who were helping. You look back on all of that extraordinary, ambitious agenda. What, what are you most proud of that you achieved through those Blair years? And what would you have done differently, if that's not too much of a googly? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great question, and um, it's hard to give a short answer. I'm most proud of the fact that if you put the combination of things together, the National Literacy Strategy, National Numeracy Strategy, some of the challenge to, to underperformance mm. in the school system that was pretty vigorous, underperforming local authorities which were challenged, if you put all that together, I have no doubt whatsoever that the education system now is much better than it was back then. Um, over the 20-year period, there's been, I know, I know um, there's been an era of austerity, but the, the system has better investment, the buildings are better, teachers are better paid, head teachers are, have more autonomy, they lead their schools. All of that is an achievement, and actually the, the performance of our schools is dramatically better. That isn't down, certainly not down entirely to me, it's not down entirely to the Blair era, but I do think that was a step change that came mm -hmm. from that. What would I do differently? Um, <clears throat> we definitely did too much so we, we could have prioritised more rigorously in that first four years when I was uh, with David Blunkett in the education system but what I do I still think we brought a kind of passion for standards for the opportunity particularly for um, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds that they were entitled to all the opportunities that everybody else got so I think we left something there that actually tapped into a rich vein in among head teachers who believe in those things as well. So I think we did that right, but we probably had too many initiatives uh, and uh, too many distractions from our strategy. So those things, um, I really regret, I don't know if this will be popular with your members, but I think there was more to do on the national literacy and numeracy strategies in primary schools that could have been driven through in the second term that somewhat dissipated. So Michael Barber, thank you very much indeed. 
I'm Fiona Miller and I'm a school governor, a journalist and an education campaigner. And here we are at the Labour Party conference. So in your view, what does Labour need to do in terms of education now? Well, I would like to see somebody take a look at how the last 30 years of educational reform has worked in practice, in particular the market-driven reforms, which have brought lots of good things in terms of school improvement, but also lots of negative things in terms of school segregation and uh, driving negative behaviour in schools. And in particular, I'd like to see Labour look at the issue of school segregation and school admissions and how we can really celebrate and get to a fully comprehensive inclusive school system in every community feeling optimistic uh, if I'm perfectly honest no because I think there are powerful vested interests at work in these debates and I think that Labour is probably going to be worried about unsettling them at the moment if they think there's going to be another uh, election very soon thank you see you next year <laughs> <laughs> So I'm Simon Henderson. I'm the headmaster of Eton College. Uh, Simon, tell us what you did before you did this job. What's the kind of uh, the route to, to Eton for you? So I started my teaching career at the Windsor Boys School, which is a big all-boys comprehensive in Windsor. Then actually, I taught history at Eton for a few years before going to be the deputy head academic at Sherborne School in Dorset. And then I was headmaster for four years at Bradfield College and then joined Eton in September 2015. So you've been here two years? Yes. Uh, so just, just reflect on, on what is it like to be, to be the headmaster here? Well, I think, like at any school, the, the primary joy of the role is the pupils. And one of the things that this role has struck me, and I've really tried to keep at the forefront of my thoughts over two years, is that ultimately it's a school full of teenage boys and teenage boys are teenage boys. And although the school has a big reputation and you know, very proud history and heritage, ultimately it's about people. And I think in any leadership role in a school, you need to focus on the people, and that is the pupils, um, but it's also the staff who enable the pupils to achieve what you want them to achieve. And although we're lucky enough to have wonderful facilities and in a beautiful setting and it's got rich heritage, the thing that um, I, don't, I try not to think too much about that and focus really on the, the relationships with uh, the pupils, the relationships they have amongst themselves and ultimately trying to provide them with the best education we can. And we've been, last question, we've been at the uh, Tony Little Centre for Innovation in Teaching and Learning today. Um, I think a lot of people won't know about that. Just, just give us a flavour of what, what that's about and what it's designed to achieve. Well, again, it's one of the things that's really struck me about Eton is that it, in a historical setting, wants to be a modern forward-thinking school. So the school opened a few years ago, a Centre for Innovation and Research in Learning, where we're trying to take an evidence-based approach to what works and what doesn't work in educational development. And we want that to be, first and foremost, relevant to Eton pupils and Eton staff because that's our first priority but we also want it to uh, be outward facing and to have links with other schools and to be hopefully uh, making connections with learning from and contributing to the wider educational world so we're lucky enough to have a distinguished advisory board steering committee who help us with our work and we commission research projects um, taking evidence-based approach to what works and what doesn't work and then we try and integrate that into the life of the school and into the educational framework more generally and uh two years in how are you enjoying the job it's great most of the time <laughs> that's leadership <laughs> 
Thank you. Ali Oliver, Chief Executive of the Youth Sport Trust. Just for those people who were never members of the Youth Sport Trust, just tell us what the Youth Sport Trust is about, what it does. Uh, the mission of the charity is to try and build a brighter future for young people through sport. So we're a doing charity. We work with schools in partnership with schools and national governing bodies of sports and others to innovate ways in which we can sweat the assets of sport. So how can we intentionally exploit what sport has to offer, whether that's development of team working skills, communication, development of leadership in young people, or importantly today, things like their physical, social and emotional well-being. Um, we have a, a member um, and of course, a bit like the uh, ASCAL membership, we're here, effectively, to give a voice to our members of the importance of PE and sport and uh, campaign influence and, and lobby for its continued support in education. Uh, and last question. There will be some schools which are having to make very difficult decisions, either financially or because of pressure of performance levels or whatever it is. Today is essentially about reminding ourselves why PE and sport matters so much. Well, Crystallise for, for me why you think PE and sport matters so much. PE and sport matters for me for two reasons. One, because it is the most wonderful engager of young people when it's done well and it gives children the opportunity to show a part of themselves and to develop a part of themselves that no other subject does. But secondly, um, because of the state of well-being of young people and the inextricable link between physical activity and cognitive performance, we're seeing more and more research that actually schools are under pressure to deliver education results. Of course they are, that's what we want. But we mustn't forget that PE and sport isn't a bolt-on, it's integral to delivering those outcomes. Ali Oliver, thank you. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. There's a short sequence of interviews now with people at the very top level doing interesting research. Bill Lucas is coming up, Barbara Oakley, but from the Curé Foundation we start with Philip Accordingly, who talks about the importance of teachers being able to use high-quality research to inform their work. So if we were looking for a country which is doing really interesting stuff, where their teachers are happier, more effective, where should we be looking at what they're doing? Oh, happiness I'm not so sure about. If you're looking for a country that's leading the world on research and evidence-informed practice using research, I have to tell you, the rest of the world would say, come here, come to England. Would they? They would. There's no question. That is an untold story, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If you're looking for a country where teachers are happier in the round, I might say Norway, but... Um, I think they're happy because Norwegians spend a lot of their life and their national wealth paying attention to the national natural world, having classrooms in the outdoors. It's a very different setup. Mm. Um, teachers who feel like they're ploughing a professional furrow in a new way, maybe New Zealand or Australia. Uh, so if I'm a, a teacher who thinks I ought to be reading more research... Where do I begin? Come, well, I'm going to... This is a bit Mandy Rice Davis. This is a bit... <laughs> I would say this, wouldn't it? But, you know, on Curie's website, there is endless teacher-friendly summaries of research. You don't have to go to the research journals where everybody's been trained to write technically in a way that nobody can understand, but the research journals make a lot of profit from. Um, just come and find the, the teacher-friendly, accessible ways. We've also been making some nice user-friendly tools for the... College of Teaching, but look at Curie's website, look at the National Teacher Research Panel resources for teachers on the website, find the things that are written for you. You know, you're a really important audience. They should be written for you. There should be no research about teaching and learning that hasn't been written for you. Perfect. Don't settle for academic journals on their own. Philippa, thank you. 
Hi, I'm Bill Lucas. Um, in my day job, I am a director of the Centre for Real World Learning and Professor of Learning at the University of Winchester. And it's my privilege and pleasure to work with a number of organisations across the world. Uh, first, so why is creativity important? There are so many things that help us get on in the world. And English, Maths and Science uh, and Geography and History and all those other subjects that schools devote so much valuable time to are just a small part of that. There are a number of other things of which creative thinking is one. Being persistent, being able to get on with people you don't like. All those things are what define individuals who are really successful in life. It's an absolute no-brainer that schools should be developing this. You don't teach creative thinking as in, here's a subject for creative thinking. You embed it and infuse it throughout all subjects. So talk to a captain of industry, talk to somebody running a large charity, talk to most parents and you'll discover that actually what they really value in children is their creative thinking ability. And that's what I think schools need to do more of. So here we are at the heart of Eton. I'm someone from a comprehensive school background. What, what is it about working with independent schools and state schools which you think and I think is so important? I think that children are children and kids are kids and teachers are teachers. And I think all schools, interestingly, back to your question about creative thinking, um, value the development of the other things. Let's call them character or capabilities in, in young men and women. And creative thinking is just one of those. And Eton is a great example of how you can be inclusive and creative. And I think there are a number of great independent schools who have got there. Not all. Uh, but it's my confident and optimistic prediction that increasingly those of us who have a leadership role in the independent sector or the state sector will want to work together. Professor Bill Lucas, thanks for talking to us. I'm Barbara Oakley, Professor of Engineering at Oakland University and the Ramoni Cajal uh, Distinguished Scholar of Global Digital Learning at McMaster University. That is quite a title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you must be very proud of that. Oh, I'm just uh, very lucky, actually. So we're here in Belfast. You've been talking to HMC and other uh, head teachers today. What have you been saying to them? I've been talking about the importance of bringing in real-world considerations about learning that are based on neuroscience. So it's not just the usual thing of, well, let's do deliberate practice and interleaving and so forth to help improve student learning, but let's talk about what happens in your brain when you procrastinate. And what about great new recent uh, research findings involving the ideas of chunking, for example? example. That, that means laying patterns of expertise. I think when people know about these kinds of things, it can really enhance their learning. So your, your uh, hypothesis is that teachers need to know this stuff. They need to know about how people learn, about the, about the brain and so on. Why is that? Why, why, do, why does the teacher need to know that? Well, it's even more than that. It's not just the teacher. It's the learner. We've often focused on teachers to, to, you know, sort of disseminate ideas about how to learn effectively. But actually, the learners themselves are stars. 
starving for this information. So this is why, for example, I teach the massive open online course, Learning How to Learn, with Karen Sadowski, the Francis Crick Professor at the Salk Institute, and it's the largest massive open online course in the world. It, uh, we have over two million learners now, and it's because people are so hungry for learning. So. I, I think it, it's important to get these ideas out to everyone, not just teachers. And the big benefit of this is going to be what? Is that, well, a big thing is that people restrict themselves early on about what they think they can do. Because they'll, they'll, they'll encounter something that's difficult for them, and for example, math. And they'll say, I just can't do this, when that's not true at all. They just don't know about how their brain works, that when they first sit down to try to learn something, it, it often doesn't make sense. And that's perfectly okay. That means your brain is operating the way brains often do. And you need to back away, access different neural networks subconsciously, and those will help you to understand what you're trying to focus on and learn. If you don't understand that about your brain, you think you're just stupid when you can't figure something out right away. And that's just not true. All right, last, last question, Barbara. So if I'm a teacher, I think I need to understand more about how the brain works and how that applies in my classroom. Where should I start looking? Oh, you're such a nice man. Uh, you can start with, uh, uh, so I have a book. Uh, it's called A Mind for Numbers. I have a free online course through Coursera with Terry Sanowski as my co-instructor. It is free. Uh, I will repeat free. And, and, and through this, you can learn simple techniques to help you leverage your learning, and it can be super helpful for you. Barbara Oakley, thank you for talking to us. You're very welcome. <laughs> uh, Chris King, uh, head of Leicester Grammar School and uh, currently chair of HMC. Now, HMC, uh, lo lots of our school members will see the letters HMC and will hear us talk about it. Just tell us what, what it is and your role there as chair. Um, well, it'll be 150 years old as an organisation in 2019. So it's the longest standing heads association. Uh, but it's changed an awful lot in the more recent past. Membership's just grown. Um, stuck about 200 for a long time. It's now pushing towards 300. It is a heads association. It's The schools are not members. It's the, the heads who, who are there. And that has strengths and weaknesses accordingly. It's, um, it's a curious organisation in many ways. I talk about the ferocious independence of independent school heads. It's the only thing we agree on. I'm current chair, for goodness sake. You, it is herding cats as chair. <laughs> Nobody will be led anywhere by the chair of HMC. Um, the only thing they agree on is their, their right to do their independent uh, thing. It's, um, it's got some fantastic schools in membership. They're names that people will recognise all the way around the world. And, and you know, Leicester Grammar School... Uh, sometimes I think we're better known in China than around the country as a whole, but uh, schools that are not so well known. Um, most of them are pretty strong numerically. Some of them are niche schools, uh, music schools and that kind of thing. But uh, the association's in good health and really focusing again on uh, trying to talk about teaching and learning. Teacher training is a big thing for us at the moment. 
I get away from being defensive and having to uh, defend the sector all the time. Yeah, let's just fi- finish on, on that one. So in terms of independent schools, academies, s- state grammars, free schools, you know, we've got this whole potpourri of different types of school. What do you think we should be doing to learn more one from another in terms of leadership? Well, uh, we instantly have more in common than we have differences. Um, yeah, gather a, he- a group of heads, uh, we all look the same, um, and we're talking about the same situations and, and the same moments. I think um, it's all about leadership from the top, isn't it? And I'm, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to stick my neck out. Having heard Justin Greening speak most recently, I am actually for the first time somewhat encouraged that there is a genuine interest in working from the top to help schools to be a little bit more liberated, to get on with a job that any half-decent head knows that they want to do. And that's just to honestly try and do the best for the children that they educate. That's got to be it. You know, we'll all, we'll all say amen to that, won't we? Chris, thank you. I'm Sean Harford, um, National Director for Education, Frosted. Uh, we're in the middle of this curriculum review which is going on. Just give a flavour of, of where you are with that. Okay, since um, about April, May time, we've been going into schools. Um, we've been looking at spe- the specifics of what the implementation, well, the, the intent of the design, the implementation and the impact of curriculum we uh, across the, the, the schools. We've been working on a framework that looks at those three levels, but at the national school and, um, and classroom level. But what the inspectors haven't been doing so far is making any judgments. They've been just been collecting information and then that's been um, um, collated and we've been playing that back through um, Amanda's curriculum this week to, to set the tone of where we are at at the moment, where we're seeing some of the issues and the good things, but also then to think where we go with it next in terms of uh, whether we go deeper into schools, whether we go across more schools, um, whether we use researchers or um, inspectors to get to that um, to get to that ultimate goal of wanting to be, have a good handle on the curriculum for developing the new framework for 2019. And, and the rationale is, is essentially to open up and explore what does principal curriculum design look like? What's it mean? And I've heard you, I've certainly heard Amanda Spielman saying there is no kind of prescribed notion of what a good curriculum looks like. Isn't there a contradiction, though, if what you then do is to criticise people playing around with key stage three, having a shortened key stage three? Just kind of what what are your reflections on the whole key stage three, longer GCSE issue? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really clear, uh, really good and um, and essential, actually, to make the distinction between what we say are the elements of a good curriculum, but that which is not a prescribed curriculum. Um, But the particular issue around key stage three and four, our concern is that youngsters are stopped from um, studying subjects that um, they would have naturally studied to the end of keys to, to the 14 to the end of key stage three um, and by um, placing the um, the uh, obligation on them to choose an option at the end of year eight you are naturally going to stop them studying those subjects that they would drop so you know is it right for them to stop studying at the age of 12 13 history drama 
geography, a language, um, which we know are fundamental elements of, um, of a broad and balanced curriculum, um, and, and then to focus on the GCSE specifications. We just think it's something that schools need to um, be really sure about if they're going to do that and what, and what it does to, um, to denude um, that, um, that broad and balanced curriculum for them. OK, last one. Around 89%, if I remember, of schools are good or outstanding. Um, what, and if that's the case, why, why do you think school leaders are so spooked by Ofsted? It's a really good question, Jeff, because I, I think that... Um, the, uh, when school leaders talk to me, they talk about the consequences of inspection and what happens about it um, when you are judged less than good. And you're dead right, it's actually around 90 91% of schools across the country um, are, are good or better. Um, I, I think, though, you know, I absolutely understand that if people are concerned that um, a result of an inspection could lead to them losing their job or um, being more difficult to recruit uh, both teachers and pupils, that that's going to be of concern to them. But I really do think they need to look at those numbers that we've just spoken about um, because, uh, you know, uh, there, are, um, there are clearly schools in the country, well, nearly all schools are doing a fantastic job, but there will be schools aren't and, 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 a, and a system of um, accountability needs to identify them and to make sure they get the support and challenge they need but it is a very small number and so you're right people shouldn't be spooked about it Sean Hoffer thank you thank you I'm Alison Peacock and I'm Chief Executive of the Chartered College of Teaching now let's assume and I know this is completely fanciful that there is someone on the planet who doesn't know about the Chartered College of <laughs> Teaching what, what would you what would you say to them that it is so the Chartered College is a new professional body that's voluntary for teachers and we aim to raise the status, recognition for what teachers do, connecting them with research evidence, connecting them with each other, building a sense of expertise and raising good heart amongst colleagues. The job's too important for us to be losing so many colleagues to other careers. Uh, and what kind of things are you, are you doing in order to, uh, A, make people want to become teachers, and B, keep, keep them uh, in the profession? Well, one of the things that I'm personally doing is that I, I do a lot of uh, conference visits and I will encourage colleagues to celebrate the fact that they're teachers, to be proud that they're teachers, to remind them that the, the average teacher you know, influences so many lives through their jobs. It's so important. But also to think about the benefits of joining together, sharing practice, sharing ideas, and expecting to find excellence in every school instead of worrying about being found out. So shifting the narrative away from blame and fear about you know, inspection to one of what can we do to show what's working really well in our school? How can we learn from each other here and beyond our school into other schools? And how can we engage with the big ideas? So we're producing a termly journal, which for the first time ever brings the body of educational research into the real messy reality of classrooms and brings those two things together and say, how will it work here on a Wednesday afternoon when it's raining with Tommy in my class? <laughs> ah, yes, we all remember Tommy. Um, <laughs> last question. You're here with council, so we've got something like 60 school and college leaders from across the UK here and one of the things that you constantly remind us of is we must talk up teaching. Mm -hmm. What's the responsibility of school and college leaders do you think in that? 
I think the, the culture that's created within the school is absolutely vital. If you've got a culture which says, in this place, amazing things happen, that has to be for the adults as well as the children. You can't just make it work for the children without taking the adults with you. And the best school leaders know that. They know that the culture they create is one of opportunity, of purpose, of celebration. And times, yes, sometimes things will be really difficult, but it will be, what can we all collectively do to get beyond this in order that we can be the best we can be? Dame Alison Peacock, thank you. Thank you. I'm Michael Walshaw, uh, former Chief Inspector. Uh, and here we are at BBC Radio 2, about to have a conversation. Just tell us what, what you've been doing since you left Ofsted. I've been doing a, a port- I hate to use that word portfolio, a portfolio of things, really. I've been doing quite a lot of international work with a couple of international companies in Southeast Asia and, and, and Africa. That's been really interesting, and also for the British Council. And I'm supporting a couple of multi-academy trusts, as well as being Professor of Education at uh, one of the London universities. So it's been, a, it's been an interesting uh, few weeks and months. Well, just one other question before we go in there. Be, being abroad, inevitably, if you look yeah. back at your own country, yeah. what, what do you see when you look back at the, the education system here in England? Well, I, I said it while I, was, while I was at Ofsted. Our system is much better than it used to be, significantly better. Children are getting a better deal now than they've had be, ever had before. England is, is not up there with the best jurisdictions, but it is improving at a rapid pace. So, I, I, so I'm very pleased at that. But what you do see when you go, particularly to the, to the uh, Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, is that they are progressing very, very rapidly. And we've got to worry about that in terms of our PISA position, you know. Uh, and we've got a lot, a lot to learn from, from what they're doing. Excellent. Thank you. See you in the studio. <laughs> the Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.